Just stop it. The run of the mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Okay, here we go. All right. All right. So today's guest is a disruptor. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Family Physicians. He's a passionate advocate for people with intellectual and development disabilities. You may have heard the acronym IDD. Fun fact, he's also a master glassmaker and a crooner. I don't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) He's the president at Intellectability, Dr. Craig Escude. Craig, can you uh, uh, pronounce your name for everyone? Sure, it's it's Escude. Okay, great. Yeah. All right. No problem. So let's talk about your disruption. Okay. Sure. IDD, intellectual disabilities, right? Right. Intellectual and developmental disabilities. And developmental disabilities, right? Yeah. First of all, for people that aren't that familiar, right? Mm-hmm. I think people think they know what it is. We know it's a growing demographic, right? What is that? What is that exactly? And who falls into that particular category? So um, intellectual disabilities are, are disabilities or, or differences um, in the way people uh, have the ability to think and to learn and to conceptualize things and really to adapt to societal functions. So people with an intellectual disability have... Um, a decreased capacity in intellectual functioning, so higher thinking. We think of those things being measured by an IQ score. Okay. But it, but it's more than just an IQ score. It's also their adaptive functioning, meaning their ability to do things like just normal activities of daily living, say to um, cook food, to get dressed, to um, uh, understand the concept of money and purchasing things and and stuff like that. So it's a combination of intellectual. Um, differences as well as um, adaptive functioning differences that qualify someone as having an intellectual disability. Okay, good. And then um, is autism, people with autism, does that fall in this particular category? So autism is a, is a group of uh, d- traits um, and characteristics that we see in some people. And some people do have intellectual disabilities associated with autism, but it is a very related and, and, and fits into this, this kind of realm. Yes. Okay, good. So now we've got a framework around what people can understand. Maybe they didn't know that before. I know many people that I talk to don't really know this, right? Sure. So you've been doing this for a very long time. I want to know, like, when did you say that's freaking it? We have to change this. (laughs) Um, Interesting. So, yeah, I started in this field um, back in the late 90s, right after I finished my residency program or not long afterwards. And I really fell into the field. And, And like you said, a lot of us don't know about it. I didn't know much about it, even though I went to medical school. Um, uh, unfortunately, there really isn't a lot of training in education and, and health professional training schools, not nearly as much as there needs to be 
Uh, and people is that because it's such a small niche? I mean, it seems to be so growing. We hear about it all the time. Well, we, we are hearing about it a lot more and uh, it, it's gaining more ground. We're, we're looking at, a, uh, as a society, a lot more about equality and disenfranchised populations and the people with disabilities, really, really in a way, um, I, would, I would say that, that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities are kind of the last place that we still tolerate segregation in a way. Um, wow. it's, it's, yeah, yeah, really. You know, we think about it. We've, we've put people with disabilities in institutions and segregated them away from society. Um, and we still think that that's okay or that's, that's not too big of a deal. And I would say that that's one of the things that I've learned a lot about over the years. And that was when you asked about a turning point, that was yeah. kind of a turning point for me. So going back to me beginning in this field and really learning what I didn't know very early on. But what I did learn um, is that we, you know, I worked in a, a facility. I was a medical director for a regional center for people with disabilities. Yeah. And that seemed to be a great way to provide some services for people with disabilities. And frankly, there were a lot of good things about it. There were a lot of positive things about it. Um, but what I learned is that uh, when people are more integrated into society, uh, we have better quality, a better quality of life. We have yeah. friends, we have, you know, interaction. Like COVID sure taught us that, right? That's exactly right. We right. all learned a lot about how mental health issues increase when we're more isolated, we have less social interaction. So while there were some good things about, you know, people living in, in institutions that supported them, uh, I would say there's a lot better things uh, to come for most people uh, when they become more integrated into society. So the turning point for me was, you know, around 2011, um, the state began looking a little more at uh, community supports rather than institutional supports. And what I mean by that is instead of having people live their lives in this really segregated, you know, community setting, yeah. they would live in a home or an apartment next, next door to any one of us and have their supports and services provided for them there. Well, my first thought when I saw that was that people, frankly, are going to die. Really? And yes. That's drastic. It, it, it was, that was That's a drastic turning, thought. That, that will make you have a, a turning point yeah. moment, won't it? Yeah. 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 Um, and the reason for that is because I knew what I didn't know as a healthcare provider and what I had to learn working um, in this environment uh, to provide good care for people with disabilities. And I knew that all of my colleagues who were practicing in community settings uh, had not been taught any of these things either. So when people move out into community settings, they're going to get their health care, not from me, who's been working in this field for years, but from the community health care provider who had no training. Mm. So I said, you know, personally, I, I made it my mission to do something about it. So, so that goes into the disruption. It does. So it that does. was sort of a wake up call. People it are going to die. Yep. brings up your responsibility level. You've said you fell into this. So the learning curve was probably pretty steep for you. It was, it was very steep and very humbling. Um, I walked into this regional center uh, because they, they needed help. They needed medical assistance. And I walked in and here I am, the doctor who's supposed to take care <laughs> yeah, right? of all this. And I was like, Ooh, I haven't seen this before. Ooh, I'm not sure how to address this. Ooh, what did, what is, what does this mean? And you didn't leave. You actually like stuck with it. What was no, the challenge of needing to know? I didn't leave. I learned. Wow. 
And I learned from the nurses and the direct support staff and the people themselves who had been in this environment for years that learned the same way that I did. And that was the mission. That was what I decided is that I'm going to find a better way to pr provide this very much needed education to the healthcare world um, without them having to learn it like I did. The like trial way. and error. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So that is the disruption. It is education. Tell me really about the disruption and why is it disruptive? Well, because for the longest time and, and, and unfortunately, this is still in existence, um, you know, healthcare providers, we don't know what we don't know. OK, if we, if we weren't taught something, um, we just don't know about it. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're not caring, that we're not wanting to help. But, you know, for instance, if you came to see me, I'm a family physician by training. If you came to see me and said, I need open heart surgery, would you do that for me? I can tell you right now, that wouldn't go very that. well uh, <laughs> because I'm not trained to do that. Yeah. But I know that I'm not trained to do that. Mm -hmm. In the healthcare world, uh, many people, and not just healthcare providers, but just people who work in this field that support people with disabilities, we don't even know sometimes that we weren't trained on these things or that there's more to learn. Um, so we are having to help people understand that, wait, there's more to learn about providing health care for people with disabilities, providing supports for dis people with disabilities. There are things that we can do better that will improve the quality of life, that will reduce un unnoticed health risks, that will reduce, most importantly, un unnecessary suffering in people with disabilities if we just you know, look at it a little bit differently and learn a little bit more. One of the biggest things to learn um, is, is how behaviors that we often attribute to the person just having a disability, oh, they hit themselves because they have a disability and that's just what they do. Like they have a fit and they go off hitting themselves or they throw a tantrum or... Right. So many times that the, these behaviors are a way that they communicate some form of discomfort. And it's not just because they have a disability that they do this, but they can't tell someone verbally what's going on. For instance, they can't tell them that every time they chew something because they have three dental abscesses, it hurts really bad and I need to go to the dentist. So what they do is, is they spit out their food. Okay. Or they they uh, become aggressive whenever you try to serve them food because um, they know it's going to hurt. And so what what untrained supporters see is that, oh, he's just acting out again. Yeah. And you lock know, him up, put him away, lock, lock him up or let's put him on a medicine to calm him down. Right. Rather than looking for the underlying potential causes. And so when clinicians learn that, wait, this behavior could actually be something that we can fix and treat. That's, you know, so it's an that's indicator. life changing. Yeah, yeah. it is life changing. Yeah. So you're actually an IT company that teaches caregivers, physicians, nurses, like the healthcare profession. Is it a codified, like you codify all these particular, I guess, symptoms or behavior things and what they mean? Is it as simple as that? So, I mean, yes, I'm really dumbing no. it down. I know. <laughs> But you know, if, I think our listeners are kind of like, okay, great, this sounds good, but what what the hell is the what what is sure, this? Sure. So I I can take you back. It'll probably help if, if it's okay to take you back to how we kind of got started. Yes. Yes. Okay. 
All right. So the health risk screening tool was um, conceived by a person named Karen Green McGowan. She's a nurse who has worked in the field for 50 plus years and is the founder of our company. Okay. And she's still with us and, and does some webinars. We do some webinars together and she's just an amazing person and, and it just has an amazing uh, sense of knowledge about all of this. But way back in the 90s, early 90s, um, the, the, in the state of Oklahoma, uh, a judge had been overseeing uh, the, the movement of people from these larger settings into community settings. And okay. he recognized that there's, we need to find a way to identify which people are at most risk for health problems. So he asked Karen to work on this project. And so you said, is it just kind of a list of codified things? And in a way it is, but it takes an unbelievable amount of knowledge to be able to put this together. So right. Karen, uh, working with some others, put together these, these groups of symptoms, these groups of indicators that often uh, are outward signs of something going on in that person, something going on medically that's not being addressed, or it could be even environmentally. It doesn't always have to be medically. Like they don't um, like someone in their environment or someone in their environment they're afraid of. Yeah, they exactly. Can't communicate it or something. Okay. Exactly. It can okay. be any type of, of I, I say pain, but it doesn't have to be physical pain. It can be some type of emotional distress okay. uh, that might, might cause different types of symptoms. And so Karen having this experience, um, you know, working in this field and learning all of these things herself began to put these things into some sort of code, I guess you can say. Yeah. And that was that became the um, the physical status review, which was the paper form of what we now call the health risk screening tool. Okay. In two thousand and six, that tool was turned into a web based form uh, format, and it's accessible online and it's used by thousands um, of providers throughout the country to help supporters. And when I say supporters, I mean <clears throat> direct support professionals, which are people who work day in and day out uh, with people with disabilities who may not have a lot of clinical training, but they're charged with recognizing early signs of health problems. Mm -hmm. So this tool helps them by going through the screening questions to identify which of these are, are, are it helps them identify which areas the person might be having some problems in, some mm. risk in, and then points them to solutions, points them to action steps that they can take to help mitigate those risks. So it, it, it is sounds kind pretty of, robust to me. It, it's, it's not very just a, a codified list anymore. Not, not at all. Um, the tool has a lot of logic built into it um, and, and does things behind the scenes when people are answering simple yes and no questions that put these collections of symptoms together and, and, and all of these things that are observed and then can point towards specific risks that they might be indicating. Interesting. And so how, how, how would you describe how this changes the status quo? So the status quo is that physicians and certain caregivers don't know what they don't know, but, and they've segregated these people with IDD, right? Is segregation the status quo? Is it I would take it even further, and this is a little might be a little harsh, but the status quo oftentimes is doing nothing. Um, okay, that's probably see, the worst thing you could do is yeah. do nothing. We 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 see people with um, a disability, or and uh, ah, they have these behaviors, and well, that's just what they do. So let's just put them somewhere, and 
try to manage. People have actually died from not being treated because of this, right? Yeah, and that that happens to everyone. Let's be frank, that happens to everyone. There are misdiagnoses at times and and stuff. But, But certainly in people with disabilities, because people aren't aware of the different ways that they present with with health risks and other conditions and health destabilization, lots of things get missed, uh, more so. Um, so yeah, so, you know, and, and again, I, I do want to say I'm, I'm, I'm speaking fairly negatively about all of this, and, uh, but, but we have come a long way in, yeah. in the past, you know, 30, 40 years. Things have really moved in better directions, and what we are doing is helping the health mindset move in that better direction. And it really is a mindset change. It's a mindset change from, oh, this is just what we see. This is what they do to wait. This might mean that there's something that we can do to fix this or make this better or relieve this person's suffering or distress and make life better. And that's where we fit in. We, our niche is anything related to health and wellness in people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. That's where we fit. And we're making a change. We're making a difference. And we're going to keep on doing that. I can tell you. Well, it's super humane. It's super humane, right? That's very kind. Thank you. So, so I understand how the disruption was created. Who have been the early adopters of this? Um, I would, I would say probably our, our, uh, earliest adopter of our electronic tool when we started moving into that was the state of Georgia really. Uh, they're, they're our longest running client. They've been using the tool um, in its electronic format since then. There have been, there was other states that used it in its paper format uh, before then when it was initially developed. But the state of Georgia has really um, taken this, this health risk screening tool and, and they use it. Uh, they use it to its fullest. They use all of the different aspects of it. It's integrated into their whole provision of supports and services. Really? Not only, yes. Not only do they use it just to um, just to identify health risks that people are missed, but they also use it to help determine levels of need of of, of extra services. For instance, if you know, our, our tool uh, quantifies health risks on a scale of one to six. And if someone has a higher level of need, then they're going to need more intensive health-related supports. Mm-hmm. So they act, they use the tool to help them identify, okay, th- these are people that need more support. So we need to, you know, give them, say, more intensive case management services, or they need additional funding because they have higher health needs. And in turn, these people don't qualify for as high a level of services. So uh, we don't need to say spend money in this area as much. So it actually can help with with, um, putting resources, both financial resources, people resources into places where they're most needed and can be of the most benefit and not necessarily where they are less needed or of less benefit. And other, a few other states do this too, but Georgia was the earliest. To be they were the early adopters. Yep. So this is changing an economic network. It is. It's not just about health and wellness, but it actually has some financial um, impacts as well. Wow. Do you, uh, are there studies or there, do they look at this as a way to like, not only where to funnel resources, but where not to, does it, does it really impact healthcare costs? Uh, yeah, yeah. So we have uh, a couple of 
kind of groups of studies. One of them looks at the validity of the tool and whether or not it can accurately predict who is at most risk. Mm -hmm. And we've got uh, some published studies that that do show that the health risk screening tool can accurately predict who is at most risk of death. Um, And there are more studies being done on that, looking at it even more intently. Then we also have some studies that show that there is a cost reduction uh, cost savings, there, uh, there's a reduction in the, say, people that need to go to the emergency room because you're looking at things from a preventative standpoint rather than emergency a reactive room, standpoint. Emergency room visits are very expensive. They the are very, they are very expensive. That's right. And you, and you say taxpayers, you're right, because m- many Most people, people don't know that. Yeah. We're the ones that pay for the emergency. You are right. Care. And and most people with intellectual and developmental disabilities or, or let's just say a high number of people um, are, are on Medicaid for health supports and for uh, uh, provision of their all, all of their supports and services. Um, uh, it's a large part of Medicaid budgets. So when we are saving emergency room visits, uh, we're saving everyone dollars. Should, um, is Medicaid using this? Um, so it, that's a complex question. Okay. Probably won't <laughs> they get should into. use this. <laughs> uh, it, Medicaid itself is the financial provider of, of all of these things. And then right. there are agencies that, that work with them to provide the supports and services. Mm-hmm. So we don't contract typically directly with Medicaid because they don't actually provide the services. Um, the agencies, we, we, we usually contract with state agencies okay. of developmental disability services, but they have a usually a very good working relationship with Medicaid. They're the funding okay. source for, the, for those services. That's yeah. good. Yeah. So Georgia was the early adopters. And, you know, I, that reminds me, I read some statistic at one point that Southern states have a higher um, percentage of people with IDD. Is that really true? Um, you'll, you'll see some numbers that indicate some, some higher, higher amounts. Is that really true though? Um, I, uh, I, I, I I can't speak with full authority on that. I haven't those in a while. Um, so I'm going to refrain from that. But Georgia is a Southern state and it was an early adopter. So tell me, um, this may be just like a very logical question, almost like, it's too simple, but who, who benefits from this? Who are all the parties that benefit? So the, the first and primary benefitor, uh, benefactor of, of, of this are the people with disabilities themselves right. who get their unnoticed health issues and pain and suffering addressed and resolved. Uh, and, and, and frankly, wow. a, as a physician, um, that who has moved out of the clinical world and I now work for in the business world. Okay. I couldn't do this if our company didn't have that as its first priority. Yeah. Uh, we really, all of us here, most of us who work in the company have worked in the field, uh, prior to working for the company. And we all share that same passion. Our, our, our primary goal is to help, um, improve the lives of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And we do that by supporting the supporters. So we, um, we provide tools and we provide training that helps supporters do a better job at recognizing health risks. Nurses, physicians. So, right. So caretakers, family members, anybody else? You got it. Um, and then you go there and you go to the agencies that employ oh, all of that exactly. benefit. And then you go from there and you have the state 
the state levels who uh, oversee the agencies. And emergency uh, rooms, do emergency rooms use this? So emergency rooms uh, typically don't directly use this tool, but you know that's one division of what we have. Another uh, couple of divisions we have are our academy division, which provides d- direct training, um, online training in the health-related field. And we have a, a training program that's specifically geared towards physicians. Um, that trains uh, physicians in the fundamentals that we all should have learned back in medical school, uh, but the fundamentals of, of providing healthcare for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. It's an online course that you can take, and we do have emergency room physicians that are using this um, to, to train themselves. That's so, good. Yes, Wouldn't it be amazing if there was some sort of massive you know, database with the training in there that when someone came in and checked in that had IDD, that, that this could be accessed for you know, immediate use. I don't know if that's even possible, but everything's possible. Everything's possible. You know? Yeah. That's a good idea. Um, who gets cut out? Uh, A lot of times in disruption and innovation, someone gets cut out or some group gets cut out. Does that apply here at all? You know, I, I can see that. I can see what you're saying. I can see that point, but that's kind of interesting in, in what we're doing. Um, I would say the the only people that get cut out are the people that simply refuse. Um, we're not, uh, how do I say this? We're not really replacing something else that's been out there. We're replacing- A void nothing. that's not nothing, we're repl- yeah. We're repl- people, these things were just not addressed. These yeah. things were not looked into. These things were not thought of. So we are providing a way to identify all of these things easy, to train support staff easy. And these things really weren't there before. Um, well, I guess that's the, the so we're foundation it. of being inclusive, that you are <laughs> including everyone, right? So maybe that's even more disruptive itself. So. so where have you had the most trouble in adoption and education? Because uh. it's it's new, right? You've obviously had to change minds or get people to think newly. Yeah. And you say change minds is that mindset change. I think when, when we're talking about education in particular, um, there's, there's, there's something uh, called the, the Dunning-Kruger curve. It's, it's a really interesting curve. And, and you, you grab- Where does the it, name come from? Is somebody's name? It's, yeah, a couple of people's names. Okay, who okay this out, put it All together. Right. Okay. Yeah, so, so it's, uh, you, you graph uh, the confidence level of someone uh, with, with their knowledge. And, you know, have you ever like, Let's say you wanted to pick up, uh, I, I don't know, wood, woodworking, and you're like, "Oh, okay, somebody showed me how to use this saw. Use this saw. Oh, I, I can got do this. anything now." So you've got <laughs> they're that. a bit dangerous. Yeah, it's like so somebody you, with a little bit of knowledge is like more dangerous than somebody hit, with a ton of knowledge, right? You, using the carpentry, you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's you've got a little bit of knowledge. And so you think you can do it all and you know it all. Oh, I know everything about taking care of people with disabilities because I've learned what Down syndrome is. Mm. Right? So that's where that's what that's where it's that's the hurdle. That's to, where we have to get over is to help people say, but wait, there's a lot more to learn that can really, really impact the lives of, of people that you're providing care and support for. So after 
as they begin to learn a little bit more, their confidence actually drops a little bit because you're like, oh my gosh, wow, <laughs> so much more I need to learn. I don't know anything, right? Yeah. And then you get really humbled. And I, the more I, you know, the more you realize you don't know, right? You got it. You got it. And <laughs> that's then, how I feel sometimes. <laughs> I, I still feel that way. But then you get to a point where you're like, okay, wow, I've learned a tremendous amount. And then your confidence level starts to go back up. For real. So the, for real. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and the hurdle is 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 helping people understand. Yes, I, I know you. You know a lot. Um, but there's a lot more to learn. Is there a, is it, is there a tougher group that's been hard to adopt because of this? Um, you know, the smile is like, yes, but you're not one. Well, I I just have to say, um, and I can say this because I am a physician. Physicians are tough. Um, you know, uh, physicians, um, have have uh, a harder time sometimes saying you know what wow i don't know a lot about this uh yeah and, and that's really kind of the the old physician way you know i'm the doctor i know everything and yeah that's, that's changed a lot i've seen that change and we do have a lot more physicians. but the perception of that has not changed in the sense that people still think physicians think that way right right Right, but I, I I will uh, vouch for for this saying that that um I I've seen that mindset change tremendously over my career. When I first started, it was like I'm the doctor and you do this. Not not me, of course, but other other people. <laughs> Never you. Yeah. And then you know, but but people ha- there's so much more of a of a cooperative mindset to healthcare now. Mm-hmm where we include people in their healthcare decisions, where we want people to be informed, and then we work together to find the best healthcare uh, plan going forward to, to help that person with whatever they're experiencing. So that just that concept, this, this uh, uh, medical home uh, that we talk about, um, those concepts have really uh, taken the, 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 uh, uh, misconception or the preconceptions of, of that, oh, the doctor is it. And whatever the doctor says I have to do that, that really is not the, the it's not the part. case anymore. Yeah. Are there any types of physicians? Like, do you have a, like a hierarchy of physicians that would benefit the most from this, yeah. like a, a scale? Like who are they? Um, primary care providers. So okay. family physicians, internists uh, would probably be on the top of the list. Um, the next group would be emergency room physicians. Okay. So many people with intellectual and developmental disabilities get sent to emergency rooms uh, many times for, for, for uh, simple problems because they can't get the access or the people working with them don't know what else to do. So they go to the ER and then the ER doctor is not necessarily you know, trained or doesn't know exactly what to do. So they end up ordering every test in the book Mm. or they admit them, you know, when they really just needed something small. So that group of uh, physicians also is, is very important. And, but not just physicians, you know, our training is not geared just towards physicians, but really every single person who touches the lives of someone with a disability, uh, any person who works in this field, direct support professionals in particular, uh, we have training geared specifically towards them to help. So you have different understand. types of training for different types of professionals. Exactly. Depending exactly. on what they do. And I know nurses 
is a big target audience for you. They are as well. We have training geared specifically towards them, specifically also towards case managers um, who, are, who, who kind of coordinate care um, in, in the system. Um, Why so- do you think state agencies are like so receptive? Do you think it's just the history of this with the initial judge, you know, going to your founder? Um, so, so it's very clear um, when someone learns about what we do, that it's valuable and that mm-hmm. it's needed. that's that's really never the issue. That's not what we what we encounter. What we encounter is uh, or the challenges that we we encounter are that um, the funding the funding sources, because there are lots and lots of things vying for that same dollar, and uh, the the priority you know. Uh, is uh, on different things at different times. Yeah. Uh, in the past year, everything's been focused on COVID and right. simply having the funds to uh, pay staff to even come into work. I know. Uh, because of, I mean, we could talk about COVID for hours, just about intellectual. Well, it's just even ironic of the healthcare staff that have been furloughed and laid off, right? During a pandemic. Furloughed and laid off, but then a lot of them, you know, either we're dealing with their own health issues related to COVID or family issues and come in to work. And then you have people with disabilities who are relying on others to come in to work to help support them and who weren't showing up. Um, And right now that there's a huge shortage in direct support professionals. And I think we kind of got off the question a little bit, but, but um, it's, 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 it's a real challenge for people right now. So the, 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 challenge in adopting the things is not seeing the value, but when people learn what we do and what our products do, that's like, oh, this is hugely needed and hugely valuable. But it's allocating the funding. That's it. That That's right. Wow. But once they begin using this and it becomes integrated, they really do see the value of this. And they're like, how could we not have used this before? Yeah. You know, how, how are we not doing this? We get stories like that all the time of people, you know, whose lives were saved. Uh, or, and that's or really, the, that's really the crux of it. Yeah. 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 Um, so you've been doing this for how many years now? 30 years? 20 years? Um, 24 or five ish. Okay. Somewhere in there. Where, where have you messed up? Oh, <laughs> and how'd you fix it? Right. So personally, um, I messed up when, you know, it's, uh, there have been times where I did the same thing. I'm like, ah, they're just behaving this way because of this or because of that and didn't look harder and didn't look further into it. You know, early in my career, um, uh, there were times where it's like, ah, somebody's doing this or doing that. And it's like, ah, they always do this. And then later we figure out, wow, they had, you know, five dental abscesses, for instance, and that's why they've been so aggressive and so agitated. And that those things are very humbling. Yeah. Um, so the well, that's just I, what makes you very real too. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I've, I've had experiences like that, as I'm sure a number of number of people have out there in different fields and different areas. But the biggest thing is, is not to, to hide them, not to be ashamed of them, but to, you know, pick up your, your big boy pants. Use them. And, and say, whoa, all right, 
this, this is a step back moment. I need to learn more about this. I need to look harder the next time and do it better the next time. Yeah. So on the opposite side of the coin, do you have, do you have any significant wins that stand out from, you know, applying the knowledge that you've had in really helping someone or saving their life or their family? I know you have many, but is there any that stand out? Uh, yeah, there, there, there are a few and, and, um, one of them I'll, I'll say was, um, uh, I, I guess I'll talk about this one. This one was a, a kind of an educational moment. I remember giving a talk at a, at a conference um, and it was about these behaviors and how they can indicate underlying problems. And the next year I was asked to come back and I was walking from the parking lot into the hotel and someone ran up to me and said, Dr. Escudet, Dr. Escudet, I've got to tell you what happened after the conference last year. Uh, she said, we had this, this uh, person we were working with and he, his, he, his behaviors were terrible. He was fighting, he was hitting people, he was agitated, he was becoming disruptive. He said, we'd, we had done everything we, we, we could and we were, um, we were, getting ready to refer him to a psychiatric hospital for an inpatient psychiatric stay. And she said, and I came back from hearing your talk and you had said, and, and I brought up the dental abscesses because it is one of the most common mistakes. Oh, it is really. We had, yeah. We had never had his teeth looked at and we sent him to the dentist and he had several problems. They fixed them and he went right back to his old self. And she says, we actually avoided a psychiatric hospitalization. Which was expensive. To, not just expensive, but traumatic. Traumatic, to, to yeah. that person, you yeah. know? Uh, and got to take him off of medicines that he had been on for his behaviors. And it was all because of me hearing you talk. Wow. And I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's quite quite humbling. And it, and it really is, it really energizes me and, and the people in our company to do what we do every day. That's big. That's huge. Well, it seems to me like, since that's like number one, this is just as an aside, dentists should know about this. Uh, yep. And, and we do have a number of uh, dental features, I guess, in the things that we do and the things that we talk about. I'm, oh, I'm actually cool. working with the dentist uh, right now in the country of Georgia, Oh um, yeah. Who's interested? I've been there. Oh, have you? Yeah, I have. I have. Yeah. <laughs> nice place. Yes. It's beautiful. Yeah. It, it looked beautiful from the pictures. Yeah. Uh, but yep, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to probably be working together to develop some dental specific training. So. That's neat. Yep. That's so cool. So you guys are international now. Uh, we, yeah. Somewhat. A little bit. Growing little a little bit. bit more. Yeah. So where do you see the future of treating IDD in the next five years, 10 years? So, um, you know, the, the, the goal, the, the, what I call it, the big diamond uh, is, is for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities to be seen for who they are. They are people. They are people first. They're not the disability first. They're not the behavior problem first. They are people first. And that mindset needs to permeate throughout all of society. And when we see people as people first, we're going to value them more. We're going to want to learn how to uh, provide better health care, provide better supports for them, uh, give them what they need and see, you know, to see them as, as valuable because they are valuable. They're just as valuable as anybody else. 
Uh, that, is, that is what I call the big diamond. There are lots of little facets um, to make that happen. There are, there are work-related issues and employment-related issues. There are housing issues. There are transportation issues. Um, our big area, our company, what we focus on are the health-related issues. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so- as Do you all, see this expanding into those other assets and facets? I mean, that would be really cool. Our company are, are just- This whole healthcare screening. Uh, yeah, you know, so much of what we recognize um, in, in our, our products and tools are the behavioral aspect of things. That's what a lot of people have problems with in, in, in managing and understanding and helping people with challenging behaviors. But the, they're not always related to health problems. Many times they are, but sometimes they're related to environmental things, to other. So it could be that they're going to work every day in a place that they hate and they can't tell anybody. So in a way, that would suck. Cool, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would super suck. Um, yeah, get on, get in the van. We're taking you to this place where you hate to work. Yeah. And you don't have a choice. You spend three fourths of your time there, right? So this is what you're going to do. You know, if, if those things were put on us, we would act out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> we know? would. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in a way, our tool does touch on some of these areas. And, and I think there's certainly room for expansion. Yeah. Okay, good. So who are you? Uh, <laughs> like, who are you? Like, have you always been uh, a disruptor? Have you always looked at things differently from the status quo? Like, tell me about little Craig. Okay, those are two different questions. <laughs> yes. Uh, have I always looked at things differently? And I'd say the answer to that is yes. Okay. Um, have I always been a disruptor? The answer to that is no. Uh, I was very quiet. You're a late um, bloomer. I, I, yes, a, a late disruptor, I guess you can say. Uh, I, I was uh, always someone who would take in a lot of things. And I still am very much a person that if there's something I don't understand, I'm not going to make waves. I'm not going to say all kinds of stuff. I'm not going to just throw out my opinion. I'm going to gather information. Yeah. Um, and that's what I did when I first started seeing people move or, or that people were recommending that we, you know, move people into community settings. My first thought was, okay, these people have some sense, you know, um, so I need to listen and I've got stuff to learn. And so I spent a lot of my early life and my, a lot of my early career being very quiet and just listening and learning. And then I began to see these problems. And then I was able to take all of this information and say, wait a second, uh, we can do better. And that's when I got my voice. And I would say that was, that was around that same time where people were really starting to move into community settings. And I'm like, wait a second. Yeah, there's a lot to figure out but nobody's looking at this healthcare world and I'm going to, I'm going to tell you why we need to do it. And that's when How I How have you been a big advocate. You stepped outside of that quiet box, right? You took responsibility. You obviously have a lot of data and education. You believe in this, you do speaking engagements. Like what do you do? Um, so what I, what I did when I first got my voice is I, um, again, working for the state with all these financial constraints, I figured out a way to get a very sizable grant uh, to begin providing education and training in the state of Mississippi, which is where I was living at the time, um, and uh, to, to start training healthcare providers and create a program within the state system to support 
uh, clinicians as they began seeing more people with disabilities. So, and, and I had, I had to, I, I wouldn't say fight for that. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a fighter. I'm a persistent um, <laughs> force is what, is what I would a say. A persistent force. I'm yeah. not, I'm not going to fight with you. I'm just going to persist until you like give up. A, yeah. You put a roadblock. Ah, well, we can get around that. There's a way, but, you know, I'm, I'm not worried about it. Um, so yeah, so that, that was the first thing, uh, I did was, 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 you know, create this program in Mississippi. And now what I do regularly is I get to take that same energy and that's those, those same concepts and really move it up or look at it on a national and an international level. I love to teach, to talk about this because it's so important and so little information just giving people a little bit of information can make a huge impact in this field. So I love to talk about it. So I, I still do a lot of talks. And even with COVID, I did tons of virtual talks. Yes. Uh, and I'm so happy that we're starting to get a little bit back into uh, personal interactions, um, you know, in-person interactions. So that I'm looking forward to that. I'm, I'm headed to my second in-person talk this year uh, in a couple of weeks. In Texas. That's awesome. Yeah. So I do a lot of talks. Um, I write a lot. I write a lot of articles and um, just in, informational pieces for different different venues. And then I also conceptualize. Um, you know, way back when uh, we had, to, this was in some exercise early in my career. It was like, okay, find one word that defines you, you know, whatever. And my word is create. I like to create things. I like to, I, I, I see problems. And then I'm like, okay, we can do one, two, three, and that'll fix that. Now, yeah, that's probably oversimplistic, but that's how I think. Yeah. I, I, I look at I, these big picture things and I'm like, all we've got to do is boom, boom, and boom, and this will be better. The most uh, powerful is the most simple. Oftentimes it is. Oftentimes, yes. Yep. Yep. What do you like to do like outside? What are your crazy passions? What do you like to do? Tell us about glass making. <laughs> Glass making. Yeah, that that was something I got into. Um, oh, gosh, I don't know, 20 plus years ago, I all I have always been drawn to colors and translucency. All right. So initially, it was gemstones, because of all the different colors and the, you know, the sparkles and the light. And uh, I said, Oh, I'm gonna learn about this. So I tried, the, you know, to learn some jewelry making techniques and all that. I'm like, oh, this is way too detailed for me and way too little picture. I, I'm yeah. a, kind of a big picture person. And I'm a really, I'm one who would paint by like a Jackson Pollock, you know, throwing the paint on the canvas. Yeah. So all these little details was too yeah. much. Uh, but glass has the same characteristics. You've got the translucency, you've got all the different colors. Um, I'm very much about things not being not being um, symmetric, but balanced. So a lot of my work uh, revolves in very free form cut things. And also uh, what I call it is inventive stained glass and fused glass techniques. I, I don't follow patterns. Um, I of do course you don't. Of course not. <laughs> uh, do three dimensional uh, things with glass that, you know, all kinds of different stuff. So um, work, do, I do 
different things, I guess I would say. With- and so you do this a lot. You, are you doing it now since you moved? Because you did I, it from Mississippi, right? Yeah, I moved from Miss. Yeah, did it a lot in Mississippi. I was in the Craftsman's Guild there for a number of years and moved to North Carolina um, for the mountains and the weather. And so I have gotten back into uh, doing some glass right now. And, and is that well, one of your pieces right beside you? Because yeah, I've noticed it, that. Yes, it, it is. So, so this is a... Um, I was looking in the background because, you know, I I love art, right? So Yeah, yeah, you do. Um, It's a mountain-inspired piece. So I call these mountainscapes. And so I take aluminum and uh, shape it and form it uh, and then make fused glass mountains. It's beautiful. And so this is reminiscent of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Oh, that's awesome. That's beautiful. What else do you do in your, like, spare, your copious free time, as we know you have? Well, I, I do enjoy singing. You mentioned crooner earlier. Yes. yes, I am a bit of a ham in that in that aspect, uh, but really only sing at home pretty much. So I just play the piano and sing and I do a little bit at church. Would love to do, be a nightclub singer. That's kind of like, okay. <laughs> You would, really? I, I would. Yeah, maybe I think you can do that fun. when you retire. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I've, I've thought about it very seriously, just for fun. Seriously. Yeah. So yeah. what's a crooner for people that don't know? Because we have some young disruptors on this. Oh, it's, podcast. it's the old Frank Sinatra, uh, you know, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, those guys, all, all of that kind of 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, type, Did you ever type. used to sing like in the in the hallways of the hospitals or things like that when you were? Yeah. Yeah. It, not so much in the halls of the hospitals, but at the regional center where I was the medical director, um, I fortunately or unfortunately got a reputation for doing all kinds of singing and musical things. We, <laughs> we would do a lot of uh, like entertainment shows and Christmas shows for people who live there. And they would always ask staff to help out. So I would, you know, would always jump in and sing a song or whatever. And so it was, it was fun. We had That's a great super time. fun. And what did you do? You said the Craftsman's Guild, you were like really involved in that, right? Yeah, yeah. So the Craftsman's Guild of Mississippi is a group of artists uh, throughout the state, and it's a jury process to get in. So you have to submit work and be accepted. And so I was in in that uh, for about 10 years uh, in glass. I did. I was uh, juried into in both stained glass and fused glass and a little bit of jewelry, uh, but using, again, some very non-traditional techniques. Wow. How do you find the time? Um, it's, it's a passion and it's yeah. my break. I, you know, I'm not a big hunter hunter. Uh, I'm not into sports. I don't watch football all the time. Uh, so I do these things instead and really, really get to enjoy it. And that's really cool. That's beautiful. Yeah. So tell people where they can connect with you. How can they find more out about the health risk screening school tool, intellectability, contact you directly? Sure. So, um, my, personal email address it well not well my work email address is craig at replacingrisk.com and that's that's also our website replacingrisk.com um, we replace risk with health and wellness and so that's that's our website and you can learn about uh, the health risk screening tool you can learn about all of our different online training courses um, that we have for uh, health-related issues and other types of support. And we also have a person-centered services division. That's something we didn't really talk about, but that's another move in this direction. What is it? A person? Um, It's called person-centered services. Okay. 
And it's where we, we don't, um, you know, for, for a long time, we did what we thought was best for the person with the disability. Uh, like I was saying earlier, this is where you're going to go to work. So get, get, in, get in the van, we're going to take you there. Right. Um, and rather than looking at what did the person maybe want, what are their preferences? And so there's a, a big move nationally um, to provide more person-centered supports, meaning let's take into account what this person likes and doesn't like and what they prefer. And let's put that into the mix. Uh, in how we determine what, you know, what path this person can take in life, what activities can they do, all of that type of stuff. So we teach um, a lot of, of techniques and skills to organizations and to individuals on how to transition your way of supporting people to be more person-centered. Wow. So it really improves their quality of life. Absolutely. And so where do they find out about that? Um, everything is on our website, replacingrisk.com. You'll see under services, we have our three divisions listed and you can learn, learn a lot and you can always reach in either to me directly or fill out our, our contact form on our website. Okay, cool. Now, one more thing, um, replacingrisk.com is the website, but your name is intellectability. Can you tell us about your name? Cause it's in intellect. Ability. I want to know about that. Sure. So, uh, um, you know, our, our primary product and our founding product was the health risk screening tool, and the company has been named Health Risk Screening. Well, that name, you know, says, okay, well, you've got this health risk screening tool, you do something with health risk screening, but it really didn't tie us to the field in which we worked. So, we went through a, an extensive rebranding process. And earlier this year in 2021, we announced. Um, our new name, which was intellectability. And it takes the term intellectual and developmental disabilities and it condenses it and it focuses on ability rather than the disability. Which is the so, end result of what you're going for. That's it, you've got yeah. it. So the name now ties us to the field and we've grown a lot as a company since the early days. So we have more than the health risk screening tool. So we have our three divisions, our academy division for training, the health risk screening tool division, and then our person-centered services division. So we all fall underneath the umbrella of intellectability. Uh, so our name ties us to the field and it allows us to really talk more about our, all of our services and how they're all intertwined. I love that. That's really smart because instead, you know, you get what you focus on. So you focus on, focus on disabilities, you're going to get disabilities and you're focusing on ability. That's right. Which is super cool. Craig, thank you so much. It was this is fun. Pleasure. I learned a lot. I learned a lot more. I knew a lot about you, but I learned a lot more today. It was super fun. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. And that's it, everybody. If you learned something today or laughed, tell someone about the podcast. Tell people to go disrupt their markets if you learned something from the show about this. And also, thank you for listening to the Disruption Interruption Podcast, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. 
Because we live in a highly litigious society, with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice, or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.